scares the bejesus out of you, you know? I mean, of course. Yeah. Because you got, you know, the father disappears and you've got the shaking electrical razor and the the sink. And the plane that's flying itself. The clothing laid out across the sidewalk where, you know, somebody's walking along one moment, the next moment. I guess you don't need clothes in the rapture. Anyway, uh, I, I never knew why the clothes weren't. <laughs> Didn't go, but Western Christianity has spent the last two thousand years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is not church with John and Nat Turney. Welcome back to another episode of This Is Not Church. Uh, John, my brother, and I are here with our friend Father Kenneth Tanner. If you don't know who Kenneth Tanner is, get online. Stop what you're doing. Stop listening to this podcast and look him up on Facebook. Uh, be blessed. Be encouraged. This is a guy who is genuinely, I think, doing just amazing stuff, putting out amazing content. But he is the pastor of the Church of the Holy Redeemer, involved in all kinds of really cool stuff, um, Open Table Conference. If you're familiar with that, you know that um, that means people like Brad Jersak and Paul Young and, 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 and a litany of names that y'all would recognize. But that is what we are here to talk about today with uh, with Kenneth is what he's what he's doing, what he's thinking. Uh, we just want to have a conversation. So welcome to the podcast, my brother. Thanks, Nat and John. Good to be, glad to be here. Um, a good jumping off point for any conversation about faith and about the stuff that we're talking about um, is just to kind of get a get your story a little bit, get your background. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, yeah, so I was raised in the South by very Southern families. My father's side are all from East Tennessee, uh, and then they had drifted down into, you know, Florida. And um, uh, on my mother's side, they're from all over the floor, from the Panhandle to the, the Keys, uh, but mostly in central Florida and, and the, the forests, uh, country folk. So uh, not city folk. My father was killed in Vietnam in 1970, just before I was five. Um, and uh, so that had a big impact on my uh, coming up. Uh, my mother's father was a minister in the Church of God, uh, Cleveland, Tennessee. And uh, it's a Southern Pentecostal denomination. Of course, it's all over the world. But very, you know, sort of holiness background. My mother was raised in a very holiness Pentecostal um, setting. By the time, you know, my in my generation, you know, um, they were, my, my parents were not quite as holiness as my mother was raised with. Um, but, but until I was, you know, 15, that was my world. My mother remarried and um, he took, this is a minister too, he was a Pentecostal minister, but took us in the charismatic sort of circles. So I saw all of that, you know, wildness. Pentecostalism in the South was pretty mild compared to some of the stuff that they were swinging with in the charismatic <laughs> movement. Yeah. And uh, so he, you know, they wrote a lot of those things for a long time. Uh, but it, we eventually ended up in California and I went out to high school out there, Southern California and um, college. I ended up after a year in Southern California and in some of the God school, I, I was at Oral Roberts for several years. And, um, I, I, um, I, that was, that was the place, you know, the, the crucible of ORU was the place where my faith really started 
I started asking lots of interrogating a lot of my, you know, of the traditions and things that I was raised with and what I was being taught or what was being said, you know, and uh, those chapel services and things. Is this the faith? You know, is this what we believe? So, yeah, and there, there was a there was a particular moment we can talk about it, but I I and I have talked about this, so I don't want to dwell on it too much. But I I um, the shuttle Challenger had blown up that morning and uh, January um, and winter morning. And we went um, to chapel, which we had to do several times a week. And um, the, the man who was leading the chapel got up and said, hey, you know, this is a horrible thing that's happened. We, uh, you know, feel for their families, whatever. But we're here to praise God. And and, and they, they went into this hoot nanny of praise and you know drums and guitars and singers and stuff and about a minute into that i just sat down i was like mm, i can't do this i if we can't deal with what's actually happening in the world outside this space then th- then we got problems you know and uh the survivability of faith in so many of my friends and this is the mid eighties, you know, in Oklahoma. And these kids came from all over the United States. But I, I noticed very early in my adult life, uh, my late eighties, early late eighties, early nineties, that many of my friends that were, you know, that I was that co-eds with at ORU just simply left the faith. I mean, because you get outside of a space like that and find out that the thing that they're shilling there, which is so distant from from the core uh, convictions and practices of the first Christians, it doesn't really work in the real world. And so I I, I was very graced to find um, some some books and some teachers um, while I was there that introduced me to the first Christians. And it was shortly after this incident in chapel that I read Aranaeus, and I began to realize that these first Christians uh, believed that that um, God came to earth to suffer and that God entered into human experience uh, and existence in order to, um, to himself die. Um, and, uh, that the, uh, that this descent of God into the suffering, you know, involves everyone and everything in that sense is, you know, universal. So I, that now a God who suffers, a God who, you know, takes on human flesh and all of the challenges of being human, um, who also made everything, um, that was interesting to me. That, I realized, has something to do with actual life. And because, yeah. yeah, suffering and dying, that's that's a big part of, of life. Yeah. So we were operating in some forms of denial of you know, what was happening in the world, you know, um, you know, you either, if there was always a reason, if you weren't doing well financially or you weren't, 
well, you weren't, your physical body was suffering. There, either there was something that you weren't doing, you, you, you know, it's really strange that people, you know, who are heirs of the Protestant Reformation came to believe that there are certain kind of heir of the Protestant Reformation came to believe that you're basically, you know, you were back to message. Mesopotamia. You've got a God who you have to do things for, or you don't have favor with him. Um, or, you know, your faith in him isn't strong enough, you know, and it's the quality of your faith, the, what you are doing that brings about wellness and goodness and so forth and so on, instead of this is something God does for the world that God loves is to reconcile and redeem participate in everything that we're suffering but also to reconcile and redeem us from that that was a big turning point and then of course there's decades since but well yeah i so i grew up in 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 john did too but just john's little background that we mentioned from time to time is that he he walked away from church for a good long time and i dutifully stayed even though in my mind i left but one of the things that i discovered through my process of deconstruction, which is a term we keep coming back to, even though I, I realize we've overused it and sometimes misused it. But regardless, this evolution that we've all, I think we continually undergo is the shallowness of my faith as a Protestant, um, the, the shallowness of my faith as a certain brand of Protestant, I should say, where intellectual discovery was absolutely um, discouraged at every turn. Seminary was called cemetery. That's where your faith went to die. Knowledge was not power. Knowledge was the death of of any kind of authentic, you know, relationship with God. Mm. And so, um, my my experience with you know the first Christians wouldn't come until my forties, until I had already been through Bible school and done some other things. And I'm like, I'm woefully, painfully ignorant of actual, you know, what historic apostolic Christian faith looks like. And they sound like heretics to me. Yeah, yeah. Is that is that been your experience as well? A little bit. Um, well, yeah. I mean, there, there was quite a bit of you know f- fear for my parents around my going to university and leaving behind a simple faith. You know, um, they didn't like all the books that I was reading. They didn't like the, the people um, that I was being influenced by until they did. Um, right. That's, right, that's right. been a I think one of the graces for me was I had parents that were concerned for a while and then they started listening, you know, because they were they were undergoing some of the same journey. And, um, we, you know, in, in many respects, it was something I did with my parents eventually, you know, and after I left school and we were doing church together and I started handing books to my dad and my dad was like, Oh, wow, this is amazing. And so it was, it was fun to do that together. But there, you know, obviously we came out of movements that, you know, disdained the life of the mind and, um, that were suspicious, uh, um, even though, you know, of course, you know, the New Testament and the Old Testament are full of, of um, meditation, contemplation, discourse and um, argumentation and everything that very much involves the, the mind's uh, apprehension and understanding of God. 
you know, um, you know, there's the mind of Christ, you know, um, from enough, the, the, the mind that's in the church. Right. Aren't we supposed to renew our minds, right? So, right. So, yes, it's difficult when you're battling, you know, institutions or cultures of church that are suspicious. But, you know, what we found out, and I know this is certainly your experience too. Um, the, the emotions can only take you so far. And, um, you know, services and ideas and ways of doing faith that are grounded only in emotional highs don't last. Just like anything that's grounded and you're having an emotional high doesn't last. Because, um, again, it doesn't, it doesn't fit the real world of, you know, that we don't stay on Mount, we don't stay in mountaintop experiences in our life. Bad things happen in, in this world. So, yeah. And then young experience, you know, young inexperienced pastors like me jump in and, you know, try to manufacture then experiences because that's what, what we've come to associate with God's presence is an experience of God's presence versus, you know, constantly living in an awareness of God's presence which is way different. And not that those things, I mean, I, I think there were very real and tangible experiences of God's presence, but they could not be manufactured no matter how we tried or the songs we tried to play or the mood we tried to set or the, you know, whatever else we did. But this, this, um, this notion of, or this, uh, this word holiness has come up a couple of times in podcasts in, in specific relationship to a church movement. And I'm not sure that everyone listening to us knows what a holiness church is. Yeah. So my mother was raised, right? I mean, my mother was raised in a environment in which you did not go to films. You did not go to theatrical performances. The, the women did not wear slacks. The men did not, you know, the men cut their hair. Women didn't. Uh, women didn't wear jewelry or makeup. I, I, there's lots of rules. <laughs> you know, right. right. Um, it's very external. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, you can sort of derive things like this out of scripture if you're reading it for that. And, uh, so everything, there was a lot of emphasis on what you look like and where you're going. And I mean, obviously, you know, drinking or smoking or, you know, dancing and that sort of thing was verboten. And so, yeah, it became a very, that very quickly, you know, become a works oriented, what you're doing is what saves you, you know, thing. It also, in my experience, was just a, a cover for all kinds of, you know, actually worse mentalities and behaviors underneath the veneer of, you know, godliness, uh, because no one's allowed to walk into the church and show their wounds, you know, like, like God does when God shows up. So, you know, it, it was about covering over the human struggle. And so there wasn't a lot of honesty in it at times. I mean, I did, you know, obviously I ran into people who practiced all those things, but that wasn't the ground of their faith. The ground of their faith was a deep love for Jesus, a deep love for their neighbor. They were hardworking, cared for the poor. This is, I'm describing my parents, my grandparents. You know, they loved Jesus. They loved reading the scriptures. They loved praying for their families. They loved inviting the poor into their homes and having meals with them and so forth. It was 
for the for the genuine practitioner, it was just a way of being different in the world, like like the like the Hasidic, right? And and others who just have, you know, a different way of doing life that, you know, keeps them keeps things that they don't that they cherish alive. But it could also be very quickly become something where you're working out your own salvation and where you measure everyone else, you know, based on these behaviors doesn't have to, but it often does. Interesting. I, so I, I actually uh, worked for a pastor, went to a church once, and that's where I was first introduced to that, you know, that sect. And he always spoke very negatively of it. Although, uh, you know, like you mentioned, a lot of this is rooted in authentic desire to do the best you can to, to follow God and to do the things that you want. And one of those things I think that I struggle with the most is as I evolve and move beyond these things is not to disdain other people's thought processes and go, well, you know, you're just dumb for thinking that. Well, that's, that, that, it's just another concrete mindset. So I'm trying to honor the fact that people are all on a spectrum of growth. It's complex. It is complex. And, yeah. and, and love teaches us to look for the complexity and love teaches us to honor people where they are and love teaches to look for the good but also to name what's wrong and uh, if you've got a church community or a city community or whatever that's that 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 has a lot of external rules and regulations the there are profound temptations to cover up what is actually going on inside the human heart and what is actually going on in the community for the sake of the standard, right? Of, you know, and instead of, instead of actually allowing the spirit of God to do the work in us and and unless we recognize what's, I mean, you know, for instance, there's a lot, you know, we, we sort of tend to name externally these different types of activities and as evil when we, we need to examine, you know, whether going to a sporting event is, is bad or going to a, a, you know, theatrical performance is bad or wearing makeup is bad or whatever. There are things that obviously are much worse you know, enslaving someone or, you know, not paying someone a fair wage for their work or abusing someone and, and so forth. And you, you can have all of these standards about things that really mean make no difference and not really be getting at the heart of what injustice is or what, you know, is, um, is dark, true darkness. So, yeah, all of these things constantly have to be examined, have to be examined with our minds, which God gave us. And, um, you know, what does it mean? And so I, I try to drag all, I try to interrogate my own heart and mind. I try to drag all these experiences. I try to drag everything to the foot of the cross, you know, where, you know, we are standing in front of the human God, um, who is giving his life for the life of the world, um, who is becoming human by dying and who loves the world and then interrogate whatever practices or beliefs or uh, superstitions or, you know, institutional structures or whatever uh, that we have in front of him. And do they still hold up? You know, in front of the bleeding, wounded God who says, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. 
we, I was talking with a group of Methodist ministers this morning. We meet every every Monday morning just to kind of for a sanity check. We're we're pastors. I think there's a Baptist. They're mostly Methodist, but I, and I'm the only. You know, I think I'm the only sort of the Anglican guy in the group, but. You know, I was just saying this morning, we were talking about PSA, you know, uh, penal substitution uh, and and uh, why people cling to it so much. And I, I said, just take that idea of the cross to the cross. I mean, go to the cross with that idea. Is your first thought looking upon this human being being slain? Why did God do this to him? Is that is that the first thought that you would have? No, it's not. Um, so, uh, anyway, I think we could take all of history, all of our personal lives, everything about our communities, all of the superstitions and, and all of the, uh, mores of our cultures and everything to that place, and then let it be judged by that moment. I mean, I, I think you bring up a good point when you're know, talking about penal substitutionary, substitutionary atonement and this idea that God... I think we, you know, we jokingly, but it's, there's a lot of truth into what they believe in this, that God hated us so much that God killed God to save us from God, right? But I think what we fail to recognize or what we fail to see is like when God chose to become human, to become, to, to walk among us, the moment that, sh- that decision was made, Jesus was going to die. There was going to be a death. Right. But we want to, we want to live, we want to live in that, that crucifixion moment because it's, it's so, it's so cathartic or whatever you want to call it. But he was going to die one way or the other. Jesus was going to die. And I, I feel like we just, we, we, we gloss over everything up to that point, everything up to the cross. And we don't, we don't take seriously the knowledge that he was that he was human that he was going to that he was going to at some point die in some way shape or form and that we we want to live in this idea that the only reason he was brought to earth or whatever you want to call it however you want to describe it was to be crucified and i think we miss i think we by doing that we miss so much of what that story is telling us about what i think you were saying was that he he's here to join in our grief in our sadness in our brokenness and all of that. And, but we, because we just live in that one moment of the crucifixion that we miss all of that. Uh, how can we, how can we recognize better this broader understanding of what this incarnation meant, what this, what Jesus's life meant to us? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, there's a lot of profound, um, wisdom in meditating that, you know, that we can realize in meditating on, you know, Mary's cooperation with the divine community and saying yes to God and letting the son who creates the world, he's the word of the father who spoke all things into being. And, uh, you know, he cannot be contained is now contained, you know, in the womb of a Palestinian Jewish teenager. And uh, that he 
uh, submits himself to this profound weakness that, uh, you know, he is born of her and then has to be nourished by her, swaddled by her, cared for her, by her, or he dies, literally. I mean, you know, he's com- God has made himself completely dependent upon this mother and on her stepfather, Joseph, for everything. Um, shelter, food, clothing. Um, and, uh, you know, he... I have this meditation about, you know, where she, after her labor and the sweat and the dirt and the breath and the blood and the amniotic fluid and everything else, you know, she lays him after that struggle in the feed trough, you know, which should automatically make, start making us wonder like, okay, he's being, God's being placed in a feed trough. Um, what does that mean that God, you know, why did he come to become bread, right? And become food for, for us as well. Um, that's another whole mystery. Another, another thing we can talk about, but you know, she lays him in that feed trough and now he's breathing in time with her and, the animals and, you know, he's looking up at the stars that he placed in the sky, the wood of the manger stone of the manger, whatever it was, he is as God holding together, but he's also absolutely unable to do anything in his humanity as a child, as a baby to do anything to care for himself. What does that mean? Just sit with that for a few weeks, you know? Um, so we, <laughs> yeah. we, and we can go on and on through the story, right? Irenaeus says that he, that he makes holy every stage of human existence, you know, when he falls as a child, um, and skins his knee or cuts his finger or whatever he, had, you know, he's the, got to run to this woman for, comfort and support and 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 everything else and you know he he learns how to talk the one who is the font of all knowledge of all language of all meaning who gives breath and language to everyone including the the whales and, and the dolphins everybody speaks in their own tongue and all the diverse languages of humanity has to learn uh, to speak by his mother. He can, he's unable to speak. So he submits to silence until in the mystery of his humanity, he begins to learn to talk by listening to his mother say words like Emma, uh, you know, or Abba, you know, mother, father, and so forth. And as he learns the language, the Aramaic that they were speaking, the mystery of who he is as the eternal source of everything begins to reveal itself. You know, by, by the time he's 12 in the temple, he's astonishing, you know, all of the learned men there, uh, you know, because not only because he probably studied with Philo down in Egypt, or some of the best people in Alexandria or whatever, but, you know, be, because, you know, he is God, and, and I, I could stay, John, I could stay with this for a little bit, John. I mean, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, um, <laughs> everywhere, yeah. everywhere he goes in his life, he's a walking, talking tree of life. I mean, he, you know, the 
uh, everywhere he goes, uh, death flees, life comes, oppression and shackles are broken. He only, everywhere he goes, he only brings liberation. He only brings help. He only brings um, peace and so forth. And uh, yeah, healing and and life, you know, it's not, he's not, th- this is why, you know, it begins to crumble all these ideas that, you know, are in the human heart and false projections of who God is. He's not the life dealer and the death dealer. No, he only brings life. You know, he's not taking up the sword. He's telling us to put our swords away. And, you know, he's not cursing um, the human uh, person or, you know, he is, he's blessing. So um, then we have to look at this entire right up. And of course, all of it's, as you say, leading to death, all of this as a revelation of what it means to be God, as the revelation of what it means to be human in one person. And what does that say about existence, about the world, about life and death and everything else? I I love the idea that, you know, in Jesus and his humanity, is showing us how to reconnect with divinity. What does that say about our ability to reunite those things and say, okay, fine, the story of separation always has been a lie. And then Jesus didn't come to die. Um, wasn't I don't know that we can say that that was specifically the purpose, but to reveal the connection between God and man and to show us what it means to be truly human. Um what are your thoughts that I, I, I don't like the, you know, I don't like the idea that God was somehow predestined. Like this was the plan. The crucifixion was the plan um, from day one. I do like the idea that, you know, it was inevitable. I think that we would, if Jesus showed up on the, on the, on the earth today, we'd murder him again. No um, doubt. Such as human nature. I, I think we, and we don't. Well, let's be clear about who would murder him. Oh, we, we would. The, the, the church, the, the, the church would murder Jesus. Come on. Yeah. And the politicians would join up and we'd all join hands and have a big party. No, no, it would be an act as it was at that moment. It would be an act of the church and the state together. Yeah, yeah. So and and we like to imagine ourselves on the right side of that. Right. And, and, you know, it doesn't help at all to say, well, you know, it wouldn't happen in Japan, uh, but it would happen in America or it wouldn't happen in Russia. But, you know, would happen in Senegal or whatever. No, every. You know, the state and the religion of whatever human organization or culture you find at the time is going to crucify God. I mean, you know, this is so. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, Plato said this centuries ago, didn't he? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, I I do think what we want to avoid is the cross and that moment has been so badly distorted right? And what we were raised in and what so many people are raised in. We, do, we don't want to make the opposite of an error of making like it not, it is, it is very, very important part of the story of God um, with humanity. We just want to be able to proclaim it with wisdom, which is to understand that, it, that it's God submitting to our violence, submitting to that shame, submitting to you know, and, and, and that's what Paul's talking about in Philippians 2 when he says he, the humility of God is human, not becoming human, 
but dying in, in that particular way, you know, at the hands of our violence, you know. And, and the, all the preachers and acts are so clear about this. We're the ones who kill God. God's the one who raises him up. So uh, we just want to be clear about what's going on there, but it is really a vital and an important part of it. And it, it, there is this, there is God wanting to, like I'm always telling people that I talk to because, you know, we're raised with these mentalities that everyone's separated from God. You know, until we show up and we start talking to them about, you know, how to reconnect with God. But this isn't our wisdom. Our wisdom is that that Christ is already related to every human being um, in at least two ways. Um, one is that he is, as God, their creator. So the one who creates and knits in the womb is is you know, by this is the one God. And also that Jesus is the human brother of, of every person. So he shares our human nature. So the one human nature that all, there's not many human natures. There's one human nature. The first Christians were very clear about this. So he takes on the one human nature that every human being shares. And uh, it's because he shares the one human nature and dies in the way that he does, descends to death in the way, this is very Athanasian. He he sees, this isn't in On the Incarnation, this is in Against the Gentiles, which is the first book of the two-part where, you know, he sees humanity um, falling not just into the grave, but his whole creation descending down into the non-existence from which it came. And it's impermanence. And he does not desire that humans or his creation perish, but that they participate in his permanence. And so he falls, right, not into down into being human, which is being human is God, God created as good. It's not, there's nothing, it's not bad to become human. He descends and is humble, becomes a servant of all humanity and his creation by falling, not just into death, but into the grave and beyond the grave towards the lowest falling human who's falling toward non-existence and raises us back up into the life of God. The one human nature. And so I love that icon that we discovered. Um, I mean, all the Anastasis icons show pulling Adam and Eve up you know, from the grave with himself, right? But that one, the monk uh, that we discovered at Easter, Brad and I did, uh, this monk in Greece who's painted this one where, you know, you could just see literally all of humanity coming up out of the grave with with Jesus, you know, restoring us not just to paradise, but into the very divine, into the very life of God, you know, that we, humanity, so Athanasius says, you know, God becomes man so that man can become God, you know? And so, right. Yeah. Participate in the divine life. Um, so that's the, that's the big story, right? John, that we want to recover is that God uh, becomes human in order to bring all of us uh, up into his kind of life. And, and uh, as it turns out, and, you know, N.T. Wright's been the person who's helped everybody understand this best. But, you know, that's 
God, in the end, God's dwelling is with humanity. This earth is restored. Um, the creation is restored along with humanity. Um, God's interested in saving this world, and he's interested in saving everyone, you know? So that's good news. Yeah, for sure. One of the things that I've struggled with over the years is that, and we just got through, you know, we just got through Easter. I pastor a small church in West Texas. Um, and my experience at Easter has has gotten so much deeper. My experience of Easter has gotten so much richer as I start to see the enormity of what actually happened and what, but then it also gets, I get sad because I think about the, the, the faith traditions in which I was raised where Easter was, was really good news for a few people. And it was a veritable shit show for everybody else, Yeah, you know, because God came to save y'all, you know, um, and then I read John Christophsom's Paschal Homily, and my heart explodes. Oh, yeah. And I go, oh, okay, death is embittered. Why? Because he was mocked and shamed. Death was rejected. Death is overcome. Death is, and it's so victorious. And we've talked about this with Brad a bunch because I still get, I just gave myself chills talking about it. I it's know. It's so I know. hopeful. And I don't know, it makes me sad to think that there are people who don't view this as as the enormous event that it was, um, and we're not preaching that good news, you know. Why aren't we preaching that good news? Yeah, the sacred, you know, the sacred year helps us too. And, and I mean, you don't have to be a liturgical, you don't have to be part of a liturgical practicing, you know, community, uh, uh, a sacred year practicing community. You know, um, one of the things that my one of my early mentors, Bob Weber, loved was like going into Baptist or free church settings, charismatic churches and so forth and saying, Hey, look, here's this great gift, the sacred year that, that the first Christians give us that helps us to really enter into the mystery of these saving moments. And, you know, what, one of the things we discover is that Easter is too great a mystery for one Sunday celebration. Well, I, I've been able to preach resurrection oh, two Sundays in a row now, and I'll, there's several more coming up. I'm preaching on the resurrection again this Sunday. Um, and we look at all of those texts and we look at all, what does resurrection mean? It means more than just my particular survival of of death, you know, and my, and, you know, um, like God, I'm going to survive death and, and so forth and so on. You know, it means so much more and, um, and it gives us time to every year to marinate in the reality of what, what is Easter. Um, same thing with Christmas, same thing, you know, with Lent helps us to, to ponder the cross and so forth. And, um, it's a great tool. I, I think it's, I mean, I don't want to get too much into it, but I, I mean, I, I, you know, I think it's the form of discipleship that is most effective um, in helping people to understand and come to a deeper understanding of, of who, who the human God is and how they have by, by grace, by the activity of God become participants in, in his life. And as John says, that's a, a life that begins in the life of God and that continues in the life of God. And there's just so much to meditate on. And, you know, and unfortunately, and, and I've done this, so I know, I, I know this isn't shocking to most people. We use these holiday Sundays as a way to bring in the people that are unchurched, right? Yeah. That we, uh, 
Um, we, and I, and I, I freely admit that when I was, when I was an associate pastor, I, I thought this way, yeah. this is my chance to save the people who don't come into church on a regular basis. And we don't, we don't go deep. We don't, we don't, like Nat was saying, we don't, we don't go into this liturgical stuff because all we're doing is we're trying to check off how many people did we bring in on a Sunday service or a Christmas service or you name it. There's, you know, all these services. And it's not about giving them that the life giving message. It's about, Hey, can we save another soul? And, um, we get, we get lost in the numbers. What, what, did, what did Paul call it, John? What did he call it? He said, check marks for Jesus. Yeah. Checks mark, check marks for Jesus. Yeah. We got to get our check marks for Jesus, man. Yeah. That's, it, it's almost to think about that as a motivation and to realize how, how much that participates in a corporatist, consumerist idea, right? Um, you know, you almost begin to see the blasphemy, you know, in that way of approaching um, the mysteries that, you know, this person, this particular human life has introduced us to. Yeah, it, it, this is not a growth industry. This is not a, <laughs> you know, um, yeah. you know, th- this is not a numbers game. This is not about competition, uh, with other worldviews, with, um, other philosophies. Um, there's nothing about competition in this. Um, it's not about winning. It's about Actually, it's about losing um, and um, uh, losing everything um, for everything, you know. And so it's, a, it's the opposite of what God does, which is, you know, God doesn't show up on – Jesus does not come back and present himself before Pilate. He does not come back and present himself before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, which is what we, if we were projecting a God, this is what we would do. You know, he would be like someone in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Look, you tried to kill me, but you weren't successful. (laughs) So, boom. um, Look, look, (laughs) I, look, I actually won because I'm still, you know, alive and you're going to die, you know, in, in five years or 10 years or whatever. But I'm, you know, whatever you did your worst to me, I'm back. That's not the gospel. You know, he shows up in these, he shows up to love. You know, he shows up to longing, to pain, to desire, to, for him, to people who are deeply saddened uh, by the loss of his company and uh, to give them hope. And of course, he appears to them. Uh, to those who, I mean, you know, imagine if he had appeared to Pilate or Caiaphas. All, all that would have happened was they'd been deeply afraid and freaked out. You know, almost like you know, right, like right. you know, he, <laughs> I mean, you know, the I, the idea was this be vengeance or whatever. Um, now he shows up to those who you know he had walked with and talked with for years and and suffered with and and um, and taught and so forth in order to you know, invite them into his kind of life. He breathes on them, breathes the spirit on them. And the next thing is not, the next thing that happens after he breathes the spirit on them is they don't speak in tongues. He, he, 
he commissions them to go and to proclaim forgiveness, the forgiveness of sins, and invite everyone into that, you know, to, to proclaim his, his, that he's forgiven sins and that, that we are now to forgive sins. And, um, he, he, the anticipation is that in these small, you know, ragtag people that an actual incarnate, an actual continuation of his life in the world would, you know, we would be his hands and his feet and his heart and his mind and his, his life. And, and that we would begin to bring that uh, to people in genuine ways that actually make a difference in their, their life and in the life of the world. And gradually everyone would come to see that this way of humility, this way of death, this way of forgiveness, this way of defeat, this way of weakness was actually what holds everything together, um, what causes all the planets to to be in their gravitational orbits and causes the grass to come up from the ground and causes us to be able to breathe is this you know weakness. And don't we, isn't it interesting that at this moment, you know, that after the resurrection where Jesus is, it does come to the people that he had been with. And don't you think that if, if any place he was going to say something like, Hey, so now for you to enter into this life, here's, here are the rules. Here are the plans. Here is the list. Uh, here's the sinner's prayer you need to say. If any place in, in the scriptures where you would think you were going to find this, this is where it would be. And it's not. Nothing there gives you anything you need to do than to just understand that you are part of this divine dance. Yeah. Yeah. And where, where, how did we lose that? I mean, how do, I mean, I mean, I, I know, I know the answer to yeah. some of this, but, um, <laughs> why do we, why do we buy into the bullshit? that says, no, yeah, that's great and all, but here's the list of the stuff you have to do to be able to enter into this relationship. It's easier to start a club and put the, mem- you know, <laughs> to put the members only sign on the door and, you know, to say, this is what gets you in and this is what keeps you out. And God, you know, is his intention was to include everyone. I mean, you know, we can talk about the Noah story, but, you know, Noah preaches and the animals are the only ones that listen. You know, he gets on the ark and then, you know, um, they're the only ones that respond. He preaches to the animal. He saves the animals. Great. You know, then, then you know, uh, Abraham, he comes in Abraham and, and the whole idea is he says to Abraham right away, this is about not just blessing you and your family, but everyone. And, and Israel loses that message that it's about saving everyone and, and they make it about themselves. And by the time Jesus shows up, they've completely misunderstood the prophets. They've completely misunderstood uh, all their wisdom literature and so forth. And they, they have, they have all their rules and who's in and who's out. The church has been, is no different. I do think that we really need to read the New Testament as any, even the Old Testament as a, you know, a diagnosis of our own maladies and of our own, uh, what we've done with the revelation of God that's been given to us, you know, is create barriers, create boundaries, create um, systems, create rules, create this, create that. 
And it actually, you know, and so Jesus is telling the one, the folks at the temple, you have created barriers between God and the creation between God and human beings. Um, and, 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 you know, and he reserves his greatest judgment for them. And I think, uh, the church has done this. The church has done the same thing. We have to confess that this is a, what we've done. We have to repent, you know, from having done it, which means 180 degree, you know, and uh, turn. We have to make and and head toward what is the story of the world. What's the story of God, and what's the story of God's world, and get back to that, and recognize that uh, it's a universal mission. Yeah. Well, and what's the what's the role of of weakness in all of this? I just got finished reading through. Um, I was reading. I was reading Capon, and yeah. um, in preparation for a sermon series I'm doing on parables, because who better than Capon? Um, but anyway, and he makes this point when we're talking about the parables of lost things, and if, it actually opens that book with a whole discussion of of left handed power, which I still find just mind blowing and remarkable. Yeah, that's a really brilliant passage. But the idea that, but that God's God's power is always seen, or anyway, in Jesus, what we see is God's power is indirect. That God, that they're not passive, but not forceful. Um, certainly not the kind of power that 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 an empire like Rome would have demonstrated. And so it confounds everybody when Jesus shows up, and his victory is is clothed in what looks like defeat. And his power is clothed in what looks like victory, or in it, like weakness. And so, what it, what's your take on that sort of paradox of the crucified God, the cruciform God, demonstrating power by submitting to our violence, and then overcoming and redeeming it? Perhaps I don't know. I'm not sure how you'd say that. Yeah. Well, I mean, he shows it to be. You know, he shows that you know just demonstrations of power to to be actually ephemeral you know they don't i mean they they come and go they don't last um the the sands of time and uh, the material universe causes power to dissipate and so you can have a momentary you can only ever have a momentary demonstration of that kind of power god the weakness of god reveals that um you know all of that is empty actually and that uh, so I, I think it, it probably we have to get back to like how does this you know affect the way we are in the world and um i think one of the things that you know when you when people project the end and their christians have done this for for the last several hundred years in uh, ways that are you know really not very helpful and you know, they, they'll talk a lot about, you know, Jesus coming back as some, someone completely other than, you know, what he shows up as or what he ascends to the father as, um, as a, you know, military badass, basically, who's, you know, going to come back and set everything, set everything right using the same means that we would use as humans, but on a cosmic scale. Right. The same ones that put him on the cross. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he just shows up as the cosmic Genghis Khan, right? Or the cosmic Patton or the cosmic Rommel. I mean, he, he's just, or Sherman, whatever. He shows up as the greatest general that humans can project. 
and he kills more people than anyone else killed before or whatever. But actually, I think, and again, you know, who knows what the end looks like, but to me, what makes gospel sense would be that people who are following the risen God, the wounded God, would en masse be killed in the same way that God was killed by violence, by world systems, by Satan and the demonic power. And that would be the end. And that the Spirit of God would show up and raise the church to newness of life out of that final violence. That makes much more sense to me than all of this kind of escapist nonsense. It definitely makes more sense than the escapist nonsense that there would be a world worldwide sacrifice of the body of Christ for the nations. Um, and that the Spirit of God, after a holy Saturday of some kind, would raise us all back up and raise everyone else, you know, into the life of God. Because there was a human, there was a group of humans who are his brothers and sisters, his presence in the world, who finally were willing to lay down self-defense and self-preservation and all the, all the bullshit that, oh, can I use that word? Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> that John was talking about of competition and and winning and all of yeah. this kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, submit to that same weakness and that God would, of course, raise us all to life in himself in this world. Yeah, I always find it very strange that, at least in the church circles in which I have spent a lot of time, the idea of submitting to somebody else's violence is, is anathema to or anathema to anything we would ever think of as Christ. Yeah. Right? Like, because in our in our in our viewpoint, you know, sure Jesus was meek and mild the first go around, um, but he's coming back and he's and he's pissed, you know, this time, and uh, I love that the, you know and you know anybody can prove text. They're like, well, Jesus is coming back. And he's, his robe is dipped in blood. And then Brian Zond comes along and says, yeah, but it's his own blood. So, yeah. you know, let, let's, read in, let's, let's read the text. We're getting ready to do that. We're going to do a 20, we're going to do a 24 week study of Revelation online. And Brian's going to be part of that. It's going to be John Bear, myself, Brad Jersek, Cherith, Nordling, Paul Young, John McMurray. And Brian and Julie and Chris Green are going to be our guests on that show. And we're going to try to get, you know, I mean, obviously to start understanding what that book's all even about in the first Christians and how controversial it was that it was even included in the Bible. But there's a way of reading it, you know, that's consistent with the Gospels and and the rest of Scripture and wisdom, which, you know, I mean... Um, we haven't been reading it very wisely. So yeah. Yeah. Mine, mine was a comic book form. Yeah. You know, and it was all 20, all, all, all literally transferred into 20th century paradigms of, you know, Russia. And, you know, we had, we're, we're going to battle with the great Satan, which is going to be, you know, and then, you know, these symbolic creatures are actually the, the, the attack helicopters of the, you know, the communists are coming and, you know, I got the late great planet earth and we got the whole, you know, that predates even in the left behind crap. It was always Hal Lindsey and his, you know, like great planet earth and, 
you know, we were all scared to death of the rapture because I didn't want to be caught doing something I wasn't supposed to be doing. Yeah, no <laughs> doubt. Was it, the other one was a, the, was it called The Thief in the Night? Was that the, the, the other book, The Thief in the Night? Yeah. I wouldn't read that one. It scared me. Which was made uh, into like a, just a horrible movie. I was, I was marched into a church building when I was eight years old and uh, at night and watched that with, you know, all kinds of other children and families and stuff like that. And yeah, it scares the bejeet. Child abuse. Scares the bejesus out of you, you know? I mean, of course. You know, yeah. You know, because you got, you know, the father disappears and you've got the shaking electrical razor and the the sink and the plane <laughs> that's flying itself and clothing laid out across the sidewalk where, you know, somebody's walking along <laughs> one moment, the next moment. I guess you don't need clothes in the rapture. <laughs> anyway, uh, I, I never knew why the clothes weren't, didn't go, but... I do. I'll tell you that what stuff like that does to you. I was, um, uh, I came home from school one afternoon and, um, there was a kettle, there was a, a pot of water boiling sort of thing that my mom would set to boil to make tea or Southern, you know, sweet tea or something. And it was, and it was left boiling there. And that was pretty unusual for my mom because we'd had a, a small kitchen fire where the fire department had to come out. So she would never leave stuff like that going on. So, and, uh, I start looking through the house and my heart starts getting more and more. I start getting more and more anxious. My heart is racing. I can't find her anywhere in the house, but the cars are in the driveway and there's boiling water on the stove. And finally, I'm like outside running around like, mom, mom, where are you? And I find her, you know, in the backyard talking to someone else. But in the meantime, in my head, you know, you know, that Larry Norman song going and I'm waiting for the, you know, black <laughs> helicopters. They're going to they're going to pick me up and they're going to take I'm the, I've been left behind, man. And I the next thing that's going to happen is my head's going to get chopped off, you know, so. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, Jeez. isn't that silly? And how far from the gospel is that? A, that's a that's light years from the gospel. It really is. That is light years. It's galaxies away. You know, as I like to talk about, you know, like evangelical Christianity, traumatizing children since you know whenever. Because um, you know, we, we teach you to pray that you know, if I should die before I wake, which is a thought that any three year old should probably not have. And then right. we teach them to be deathly afraid of what awaits them on the other side of that. And then we teach them to be deathly afraid of being snatched away in the night or not being snatched away. Actually, it's the ones who are left behind who are, who are screwed. So there's too much trafficking and fear. And one of the beautiful things that I, I, I appreciate about guys like you and about guys like Brad and Brian and those who are, who are turning us back towards a more authentic and a more beautiful gospel is, um, the attempt to take seriously the idea that perfect love casts out fear, you know? And so um, for that, I'm grateful. And and I, I, I constantly point towards point people towards people like you towards people like Brad, who will, who will fill their hearts with hope, um, remind them that the gospel is in fact, good news um, that Jesus didn't just come for good little boys and girls that he came for the sick and the wounded and the broken and that there's hope on the other side of that. And, and there's hope now, you know, that's the other part of that that really bothers me is so much emphasis placed on the sweet by and by that we, we seem to not give a rip about the hells people are in now. And I know that that's not true for you. I know that's not true for your church that you guys do a lot um, to help alleviate and suffer with people. So for that, I'm, I'm super grateful. Yeah. I, I mean, you, you for just talking about children, I just want to say like, 
you know, Jesus is the one who invites the children, you know, to sit on his lap, you know. Um, imagine sitting on the lap of God and having that as a memory um, as an adult that when you were a child, you sat on the lap, God's lap. I think we want to fill the minds of children with the majesty and beauty and glory of of the story and um to to because we need you know we need hope and as you said it is it is very now oriented you know this the gospel one of the things about all of scriptural wisdom really and the encounter that happens with the human god is that right now is the only uh I, my friend john bear likes to say every moment of time is the last moment of time and i think that's a you know i think that is a very important wisdom to get into your heart if you're going to follow the human god is that you know the past is gone there's no there's no accessing even you know the beginning of our conversation an hour ago you know i can't get back there I'm, you know, and I cannot project myself into tomorrow or two weeks from now or six months from now when hopefully the pandemic is over. You know, I have to, I am as a human being bound to this moment. The good news is that that's where God is. You know, God is here in the present moment, you know, and um, yes, he's in the future and yes, he's in the past. But this is the only moment of time I have. Um, John takes us, John Bear takes us to, you know, philosophical heights with the reality that they're really the past is gone and the future doesn't exist. And so that literally, you know, just right now is what exists. Nothing else exists except this present moment. And so that just, that's also reorients us to the, I don't like what what word would I want to use? I think the the weight of the weight I think is the right word, not the urgency, but the weight of the present moment. Um, and so, where God is speaking, where God is acting, both to save the cosmos and to save everyone. So, um, where is he? Uh, my uh, I, I had this friend named Jack Heeslip, who's a priest of the Church of Ireland, wonderful man. And he used to say, like, especially people that get caught up in like, like, what is God's will for me? Or what am I supposed to be doing with my life? And get really, really concerned about that. It's just to, to notice, like, to where is God already at work in the present moment? Because he is already at work everywhere in the present moment and join God in what God is doing already. And so, you know, we know that it is his desire to, to preserve the creation and to preserve humanity and for uh, everyone to exist in the shalom that he brings. And so I can find a way to, you know, be the hands of God, the mind of God, the heart of God, the courage of God, the peace of God, the love of God, 
in my, you know, by the power of the spirit, not because I'm someone special um, or have special DNA or cells or, you know, uh, thoughts or whatever, but because I, I can participate by the spirit in the work of the human God. So just get to work wherever I am, you know, bringing about um, the end that God desires. Uh, And he'll take all of that work up into a ultimate moment in which uh, an ultimate present moment in which everything is as it should be. But I don't, you know, it's not the task of the human to, sit and wait for that to happen you know um you know it's the task of the human right now in the present moment to join god as you're talking i'm having this picture in my head but i'm having this picture in my mind of 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 god speaking the world into existence and that process is ongoing and so the future that we bring our hands about and the future that we worry about hasn't even happened yet and I don't think even in the, I mean, you can say that God exists out of time if you want to. Uh, I'm not so sure that I, that I'm there. I believe he's I, I, like this creation is, is still an ongoing process. And I'm not sure if that resonates with you or if I'm full of crap. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll, uh, yeah, I, it has to be right. I mean, first of all, there, there's, there's the creation and the creation continues to become, you know, we, we know that there are new species of animals that didn't exist before that exist now, um, that there, there are species of animals that used to exist that don't anymore. Same thing with the flora and the fauna and the, uh, you know, there are, there are new human beings coming into existence all the time, literally all the time, all over the planet. And those, there was no existence for those human beings before the moment that they were conceived in their mother's womb, not according to Christian story. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's an on, absolutely. And then there's the new creation that's happening, you know, in the humanity of Jesus. Um, you know, we were born from our mothers, but then we're born from above. You know, that's what's beautiful about, you know, John 20 and 20, uh, I think it's about 22, 23, where, you know, he breathes on the receive the Holy Spirit. That's the only where that breath you know, occurring there is the only time that word appears in the New Testament. And it has a, it, it is the same Greek word that's used in the Septuagint in the Greek Old Testament that would have been what was largely circulating in the time of Christ. Um, it's the same word where it says that, that God breathed life into the, you know, the nostrils of the, uh, inanimate Adam, you know, his body formed on the ground, perfectly fine, but without life, you know, and uh, not dead, but, you know, formed from the ground and God breathes into him and animates his body. So this new creation is happening, you know, simultaneously. One day, you know, everything that's created will also be newly, you know, created after that 
the new creation that gets unleashed in the world and the death and resurrection of God. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. I love that. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. And it flies in the face of any sense that Calvin would have given us, you know, of this sort of predetermined, mapped out future that we're all just, you know, kind of riding along. And when I was a kid, remember those racetracks, John, we had when we were kids, little grooved racetracks that the cars would go on these little pre. That's always sort of how I felt like Calvinism was like, hey, I'm going to stick you in this little path. And you, you, you can't really deviate from this um, because that's that's where you're going to go. And you might have the illusion of choice, but you don't actually have choice. Um, but that doesn't that sort of presuppose that that future exists already. And I'm just sort of walking into it. Yeah, I think it's more like we trust that the ultimate end of all human choices, God is at work underneath, above, around, all of it to bring about, as only God can do, a good end. Right. You know, um, only God can make the cross life for everyone. Um, you know, only God can bring good from evil. Um, now, he doesn't need evil. He doesn't cooperate with evil. He doesn't participate in evil, but he can. And only God can do this, is he can cause good to come from it. And and uh, so, yeah, it's, uh, and, you know, again, like in that sense, all of my choices um, are predestined to end up in God's good, you know, um, they'll, they'll be, um, somehow redeemed into, you know, the, the world that God's bringing to this world. Um, and anything of it that cannot be redeemed will be destroyed, you know? Right, so. right. So in that sense, we can buy off on some sense of predetermination in that ultimately we trust God to redeem and to make sense of even our stupid choices. And- yeah, but it's not atomized down to like, yeah, you know, I, you know, I put this black sweater on, you know, before we started talking, you know, because God, that's, that's God's will, you know, and that's where you get, that's where you get someone who's seems to be perfectly reasonable a lot of the time, you know, John Piper, for instance, who's uh-huh. reasonable a lot of the time. He sounds like yeah, a very reasonable a person. Will say things like, you know, if someone comes up and blows this building up, I I cannot be angry with them because God sent that person into the building to blow the building up. Which is just, you know, and then you just go, yeah, but you know, he's painted himself into a corner with that, hasn't yeah, he? I mean, he, yeah, he either has yeah. to he either has to recognize his own inconsistencies or he has to take it to its logical or illogical conclusion. Yeah, um, yeah. I remember hearing him talk one time and he spoke, of, and I don't, not, I'm not picking on Piper. He's, an, he's, he's too easy a target. Um, but, um, but there was, you know, he was talking, he was bragging on himself in a sense for telling his daughter who at bedtime was asking about a bridge that had collapsed and killed a bunch of people. And, you know, did God do that? And I told her, yes. And he's glorified through it. And I said to myself, you are child, of, it's child abuse. You're raising this yeah. kid to think that God 
is evil. We're calling evil good and good evil. Um, and it just, yeah, I, I just can't abide it. So can we also though swing the pendulum too far the other way and saying, well, God doesn't control, uh, I don't want to use that word. God doesn't, <laughs> isn't, God isn't involved in anything and everything is our free will choice. No, uh, of course because not. I think that, um, well, first of all, I think we don't understand free will uh, right, at right. all. No, I don't, probably I don't, not. Um, we don't. We don't. We don't hold enough knowledge in our head of yeah. what God is about to even say that free will exists in the way that we talk about it. Ab- absolutely. Or every everything when we start getting into some of these things, you know, everything we're saying is contingent on the fact that we only have a certain. We have a limited. Uh, apprehension of the world and of time and of God and of ourselves and, and everything else. And that we, you know, we have self-deception, you know, about ourselves and, 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 and obviously wrong ways of thinking about existence. And I mean, I, you know, I, I constantly, if we're honest, we're constantly coming up on things we didn't know um, about ourselves, about the world and so forth. So absolutely. Um, there's some things that, you know, we can have a reasonable certitude, you know, that we know what we're talking about. Um, but it's very limited, you know, and everything else, everything else is trust. I mean, I can't speak, like I was saying, I can't speak for Nat, but I mean, this is kind of where I, I lay my hat now is like, if it, if it, if it's not life giving and if it's not based in love, then I can, I can, I can, I can put it aside. And, um, it's not, I don't, yeah, we can, we can debate it. We can, we can talk about it academically. We can do all that, but if it's not life-giving and not based in love, it's just, I I no longer, I don't, I, I think this, this, this phrase has been coming up a lot. I just no longer have the bandwidth to, um, to take the time to worry about it. Uh, it, it's, it'll sort itself out at some point, but, um, it just seems, it seems like, you know, just spinning wheels for spinning wheels sake. Yeah. Now, and, and I do think that someone, you know, has, we do have responsibility to speak well about God and, you know, to the extent that we, and so I do think that there is a very, severe responsibility, you know, um, that someone takes upon themselves to begin to attribute evil, um, to God. And, um, and so it, you know, yeah, it, I think it's okay to say, look, that doesn't fit with anything that we know about God, you know, because our understanding of God starts with this person, and this person is so at odds with the statement that that person just made. His life, his energy, his words, um, and what he reveals is so at odds with that statement um, that that we just have, we we have to plainly reject it. Um, at the same time, that we recognize that we don't understand everything the way God understands everything. But we understand it enough to say, no, that's not an accurate representation of God. With humility, you know. But I agree with you, John. I mean, you know, I mean, 
I think the older we get, right, the the more we recognize there's there's just le- there's less time to you know to monkey around with um, you know stuff as you said that doesn't bring life. Yeah, I mean, all of my theological musings and all of my pontificating and all this other stuff, you know, I do get to a place where I'm like John. Um, I've boiled it down to life and death. You know, there's either we're either we're either we're either deal- we're dealing in one or the other at all times. And, um, you can take, um, take that for what it's worth. I don't really, I don't care too much about abstract concepts of morality and holiness codes and silliness like that, but I can pretty plainly evaluate if my thought or my intention or my action harms my neighbor or myself and is either life giving or death dealing. And that's a pair for me, that's a fairly binary choice. It's not even that difficult, you know? So, but it gets rid of all those vagaries of, you know, some of the silly stuff that we wrangle and argue about, you know, what is the will of God? Well, I don't know. How about love, you know, <laughs> love justice, do mercy, you know, walk humbly with your God. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, let's start there. Love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's not, you know, there's not a ton that we have to, uh, to wrestle with. And actually what I would say is if we were doing all those things right, then fine, let's get into the nitty gritty of some of the other stuff. Yeah. Do justly walk, walk humbly. With your do justice, love mercy, walk humbly. Yeah. So if we can start doing those things consistently well, then maybe we have some room to talk about some of this other stuff. But I'd, let's, we have our task cut out for us. Yeah. And, and Just all, loving each other. I mean, doing, you know, loving, you know, doing justice, loving mercy, and and walking humbly with, a, with the God who, who shows us that, you know, he, 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 his, his love is capable of accomplishing the salvation of the cosmos. And, you know, that gives us confidence that in the end, um, you know, um, it's not, I mean, we're invited into participation in that, you know, but in the end, it's, it's God's work, you know, um, it's not up to us. You know, and I think a lot of the world's a lot of the world's evil flows from this idea that we're we are the ones who have to get you know X Y or Z done. Um, a great great bit of the world's evil flows from that conviction, and when we begin to recognize that it's our participation in the work of God's already done, um, and the, to this particular God who dies for the life of the world, then we, we're going to be able to, with a greater sense of shalom, less anxiety, um, you know, with trust, not certitude, and, um, you know, join God in loving the world. Um, so, yeah. Man, that's beautiful. It is beautiful. And it's, uh, it's, it's, in its simplicity, it's beautiful. Um, not that, not that that translates into easy, but, um, but simple, you know, uh, there's a, there's a simple truth to it. I came into this with, uh, you know, I kind of, I sometimes Nat and I do this. We're like, Hey, I'm going to kind of lean on you on this. Cause you, I think you know this person a little bit better than I do. And, uh, um, this has just been a remarkable conversation. Uh, I could, I, I, and I think Nat agrees. I could, I could take this another hour. Um, there's there's so much that we've that we've just just touched the surface on yeah i uh it's good good to uh connect with with you both yeah you too 
Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch, where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.